HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Patina Events at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, an idyllic location for weddings, corporate events, and parties of any style. Visit us at patinaevents.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're bringing you four stories about lost and found culinary treasures. We are searching for what will be lost, and we're trying to rejuvenate it. What we try to do is collect these sourdoughs that contribute to the biodiversity of sourdough in order to store them, to document them, and be able to preserve them for the future. It's bringing back the history and just being part of that time that just, it's, there's nothing like it. You know, there's, there's nothing like it. When fame comes late, uh, I'm sure it's just as sweet as when it comes earlier. Tune in to this week's episode of Meat and Three. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Meant to be Eaten on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Coralie. Joining me today from L.A. by phone is Sarita C., author of The Decolonized Eye and the Filipino Primitive, media and cultural studies professor at UC Riverside, and founder and curator of online exhibition space Center for Art and Thought. Welcome to the show, Sarita. Thank you, Coral. How are you doing? Good, good. Um, I was listening to the commercial, and I think it's so funny that um, I feel like it's very topical, like the, the collection of diverse sourdough breads. Um, and so we'll kind of talk about the importance of curating a collection of history. Um, yeah, no, that, that sounded uh, amazing. It, it really reminds me also of um, some material history scholars um, that I've started to learn about, um, in particular, those who focus on Asian American material history, including food and cooking utensils. Mm-hmm. So actually, um, let's just get right into it. Um, what, why is Asian, Oceania, um, etc., always grouped together in the museum space, and why is that still happening? Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Out of curiosity. <laughs> Um, I, I mean, that, that's a really uh, uh, important question, um, and I can just, you know, offer one of, I think, a million uh, different ways to answer that question. Um, since you're, you're, you're located in New York City, right, mm-hmm. New York City, um, uh, one way to 
uh, answer that question have to do with the Museum of Natural History, uh, right off of Central Park, where um, uh, families, um, you know, parents with their kids tend to go, and um, and it's usually one of the earliest exposures if you know children go to museums to um, the division of the world uh, into really simplistic binaristic categories like what is considered a civilization um, that has culture and what or who is considered primitive or savage and from there um, you know one really easily and unconsciously picks up the message the basic story which is that there is a story of development that certain peoples and civilizations are barbaric primitive belong to a particular zone of the planet and other civilizations um, are, are capable of thinking um, of are capable of being rational and are civilized and hence kind of represent universal man. And, and so part of the collapse of Asia and Oceania is part of that larger categorization and division of, of the planet, <laughs> um, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so what is Center for Art and Thought and... How are you fighting this institution with the online exhibition space? So the Center for Art and Thought, this was, um, this is a uh, primarily web-based organization that the filmmaker and educator Angel Velasco Shaw and I co-founded now about five and, uh, five and a half years ago. And um, so a couple things that we were trying to do, first of all, you know, that idea of the universal, right? Who gets to be the universal representation of man, right? Which hides that story of who gets to be civilized, who gets to be rational, right? The first thing we wanted to do was to um, challenge that idea that um, that Filipino culture and Filipino diasporic culture in particular uh, could actually be the center, the point of departure for thinking about all kinds of things, um, for thinking about arts, education, scholarship, all of that. Um, and and so uh, Center for Art and Thought was about recentering how we think about the center, right? Mm-hmm. But also trying to bring together to, in, in curating and editing um, online group exhibitions, uh, to bring together arts and scholarship um, in the same space and to hopefully produce a kind of intersection and, and, and new conversation between um, arts and scholars who don't typically talk very well with each other for lots of different reasons. So that's kind of in short, um, shorthand mm-hmm. yeah, where so, the center came about. Yeah. Um, what exactly is it about Filipino history slash diasporic culture that makes us such rich fodder to become this point of departure? Right. Um, so, uh, I mean, I start by saying that uh, I knew nothing about um, the relationship, the history of the relationship between the Philippines and the United States until college when I first learned about the Philippine-American War 
which um, it broke out in 1899, so this is, you know, now, you know, 100 and almost 120 years ago now, broke out in 1899, lasted until 1913, um, and according to our more recent, you know, scholars, was a genocidal war of military conquest, mm. um, totally devastating, monumentally devastating war. And I was horrified in college, you know, that there, that would be, you know, when I was like 19, 20 years old, that that would be the first time I ever really heard about this. Um, so I started to kind of um, think about this along with lots of different other, you know, um, people who would go on to, you know, do, do scholarship about this, both in and outside of the university, about what this, what this meant. And if you take a look at things like the 1904 World's Fair, right? So, uh, and the way in which the Philippines and what would become Filipino called Filipino peoples, how they were exhibited at the fair alongside all other kinds of peoples and civilizations who were just put on display, right? Um, what uh, a number of us started to realize is that the visual display of the Philippines and, and so-called Filipino peoples was happening at the same time that this military conquest of the Philippines by the, by um, America was going on. So what's really kind of distinct, I think, about the Philippines and Filipino diaspora is that the relationship between empire and vision, vision, like well, how we see, is so tightly intertwined. And from there, right, um, uh, I started tried to track through the Center for Art and Thought, but also through my written publications how this redounds, how this, how this continues to echo in really powerful ways um, in Filipino diasporic, in particular U.S. Filipino um, diasporic culture today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's actually go back to the 1904 World Fair. Um, when I saw a slide of mm -hmm. that in art history in college, it just blew me away and I wish I could have gone. Um, what can you give an ex or can you talk a bit about um, what was exhibited and why it was exhibited and who it was for, um, and also what was problematic about the way things were exhibited? Well, before I answer, can you tell me a little bit about what, what was your college class about and and you know what was that slide doing there? Mm -hmm. So it was a visiting professor. Um, she was supposed to teach Baroque art, but she went totally rogue and did what she called the global early modern. And so it was just a class in colonial art, which was actually the um, inspiration for this podcast. I noticed similar things happening in food and just seeing pictures of this World Fair and also um, the illustration of the Wunderkammer. Um, those have just followed me and I thought about them a lot these past few years. And yeah, so thank you, Jenny Sakai, wherever you are. Oh, sorry, what, what, what was the name again? Um, the professor is Jenny Sakai. I yeah. believe she teaches at right. Reed now, yes. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> um, yeah, there was a lot of food at the World's Fair, right? I mean, uh, ice cream in particular is a huge hit, mm. I think. Um, so this 1904 World's Fair was at St. Louis and had this giant, both in terms of the number of um, people who were imported from the Philippines, um, as well as the acreage um, 
that the that the Philippine exhibit, as it was called, I think, um, took up in the World's Fair, and uh, and the uh, the fair, I think it lasted. It was open to the public. I can't remember um, how many months um, it was open for, but it it did attract a lot a lot of people, and. And the Philippine exhibit, because again, because of the size of it, and also because the Philippines through the war, right, was was on. I mean, in headlines, right, and on people's minds, right, really attracted a lot of of attention. So um, uh, it, it was really kind of uh, the way in which um, Americans at the turn of the century, right. Uh, over, you know, 116 years ago or so, first kind of really understood what it meant to be a transoceanic global power uh, in the wake of, you know, sort of its establishment as a settler transcontinental um, uh, power um coming out of the uh, wars against indigenous peoples uh, in, the, in the Americas. So um, the World's Fair, you know, was, was really, really crucial for Americans, I, I think, to, to uh, grasp, understand, and learn about how to become a visual, uh, a visual imperial power in a very, very ordinary and kind of leisure and entertainment kind of way. It's really interesting that it's the target audience is Americans and it's not to better understand others' cultures or practices or even food, but just how to, um, as you say, embody this transoceanic power. And so what are some ways to that they conveyed this power, how to flex these powers? Uh, I'm sorry, who, who, um, what are some ways, can you, can you yeah, yeah, um, sure. talk a little bit of math? Um, so just, I, the reason why I'm always bringing, mm-hmm. I always want to talk about art history on the show is I see so much of this mm-hmm. happening in food where, um, people will go to quote unquote ethnic restaurants and say, I had duck foot and it was wild, but mm-hmm. I overcame it. And there's that weird mm-hmm. subject object relationship with food. And I think that happens also in this world fair. And so in what ways do um, people or maybe attendants mm. consume this fair and, and what what does it tell them about their perceived power? Gotcha. Um, so uh, uh, there, I mean, there are a whole bunch of um, books and articles about about this particular fair and, and world fairs um, in, in general. But um, part of what happened is, as I understand it, is that as you went through the fair, and then also within the Philippine exhibit, everything is sort of, you know, there's a whole design, right? There's the architecture to the fair, to any kind of exhibit, right? To any museum space, gallery space, right? Park, right? But the thing is, um, uh, as you as you toured, went, went through the fair, your, your footpath, right? How you actually walk through the fair and look at things is being is being mapped in a way that's telling a story, right? About which Filipino, so-called Filipino groups of people, are civilized, right? Or closer to being civilized, who wear, for example, Western clothing, right? Mm-hmm. As opposed to those people who are being displayed and are actually, I mean, this is all very 
sort of, you know, uh, choreographed, right? Who are being um, uh, uh, asked or, uh, you know, trained, you know, by the fair organizers to display themselves um, in semi-naked, you know, conditions and to, you know, um, consume uh, certain things that are that are utterly taboo. For example, dog, right? Um, and the term dog eater, you know, is 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 you know, the closest one thing can come to saying that somebody is taboo, other than being a cannibal, right? <laughs> so, mm-hmm. uh, to, to eat, you know, uh, your your best friend, the dog, right? Um, anyway, so. Uh, so that, that's part of what, what is being displayed, right? You're, you're kind of, you know, eating something amazing, like ice cream, um, fairly, you know, a fairly new, um, uh, 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 sweet, you know, kind of treat that an everyday, um, you know, American kind of consume all the way to learning, right, about the hierarchy of peoples and cultures. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, so then to build on that, what exactly is the quote-unquote Filipino primitive and how how to transcend this moniker? Mm. Right. So, um, uh, you know, I I was... um, (laughs) I'm just like, why is this so hard to to explain? Um, Right, so I, I used to teach at the University of Michigan in the Midwest. And Coral, have you ever been to the Midwest? Oh, I went to school for Any? two years in middle of nowhere, Ohio. So yes. <gasps> yes. So you know. I understand. Okay. Yeah, people were you asking understand. me what Korean, Japanese, everything was. And like, I would answer because I knew, but it was also like, wait, I'm not any of those. Why am I like your Wikipedia right. for this now? Yeah. Anyway, I understand. Okay. Yes. So, so the Midwest, right, typically, you know, people associate the Midwest with America's heartland, right, um, and that, you know, hard to find, you know, anything other than sort of generic, so-called generic uh, white food or whatever. The thing is with the Midwest, <laughs> Midwestern universities, like the University of Michigan, um, and also Wisconsin in particular and uh, universities in Illinois got tapped for becoming experts in the Philippines. Hmm. There's a whole long story about this, but there are a bunch of like anthropologists or an- including amateur anthropologists and um, uh, um, ethnologists uh, um, and uh, botanists who started going to the Philippines along with some students to start collecting um, butterflies, ferns, but then also some human artifacts, right? And start building this collection for the founding of natural history and anthropological museums. This is recently. This is from the 1880 on. Yeah. So there's a huge collection um, on the Philippines uh, in the Midwest, <laughs> hmm. as, as weird as that sounds. And so while I was working at the University of Michigan, um, I, you know, because I work on Filipino, Filipino diasporic stuff and 
started to get to know about Southeast Asian studies and Philippine studies, um, started to get to know something about the history of this, of this collection. And I just, you know, it was this collection as well as uh, an exhibition, which did, you know, just confirmed um, this idea of the primitive Filipino. So, you know, how do we beat that? How do we, you know, sort of try to challenge that moniker, as you asked? Um, part of what I realized is that it's actually not enough. It's important, but it's not adequate or enough to challenge these ideas as either true or false or authentic versus inauthentic um, because it doesn't it doesn't really get at what I thought was a huge the heart of the matter which was had to do with this accumulation of of artifacts and things and including in one case that I saw human teeth from <laughs> from yes human teeth from the Philippines hmm. because they were you know as well as artifacts from from burial grounds like sacred burial grounds hmm. that these Michigander anthropologists collected you know um, this is violating every, you know, ethical <laughs> kind of, you know, um, principle, and then bringing it back to the Midwest. So, so part of what I realized is that this whole founding and even idea of academic expertise and knowledge was really founded on who's considered, once again, primitive, and who's considered not only civilized, but universal. Mm -hmm. um, hence, <laughs> this, this, this concept of Filipino, the Filipino primitive in relationship to this concept of primitive accumulation, which is more, you know, connected to Marxist economic concepts of the foundations of capitalism. Yeah, let's... Uh, I want to get back to the Marxist idea, but um, this I wanted to also tie this back to our opening question, which is um, mm -hmm. you talked a bit about how our understanding or quote unquote, our understanding of Philippine history is through the Museum of National History of Art, Natural History of Art. And so why is it that these artifacts um, rarely transcend to or become displayed in art museums? Why are they relegated mm. to science or history museums? Yes, I, I that that really yeah really cuts to I think the heart of the matter. Um, why is it that uh, the, you know there's this division right between art and nature, right? And some people get to um, have the ability right to um, create art and other people are incapable of creating art and what what they create is sort of closer to, to nature. So for example, New York City, back in New York City, and here I'm going to just completely plagiarize from uh, the scholar um, Nika Ball 
uh, Mika Ball has this really wonderful analysis of Central, the Central Park in New York City, right? So Central Park, right, is divided in lots of different ways, but it's definitely decide, divided between the West versus West Manhattan versus East Manhattan, right? So you got the Upper West Side and the Upper East Side. So Museum of Natural History is on the west side mm-hmm. of the park. Carl, what, what are the museums on the east side of the park that first come to lead to your mind? My geography is so bad, but I'm thinking like the Museum of Modern Art? Yes, the Met, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. So just think about the, the difference right, between the Met, right? That's like high art, right? Mm, yeah. Uh, you know, that, and that is European. I mean, there's all kinds of art. You know, kind of, but but in terms of like what people go there for is the experience typically of high high art, right? European art, and you bring your kids right to see the dinosaurs, <laughs> mm. and then exotic people over on the other side of the park, right? So. Um, yeah, that's that's how uh, that's how that happens. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, why certain civilizations, certain kinds of art, are are do appear in a natural history museum, and why they do not appear in hmm. the Whitney, mm-hmm. right? Um, for example. Yeah. So let's. Well, that's changing. Let's get back to primitive accumulation. Could you break that down for us and? identify um, some more tangible examples of that happening with um, in the art space or the history space. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so um, Karl Marx is, uh, you know, known for this uh, concept called primitive accumulation. And it's basically about the kind of um, clearing of so-called empty land, which means the emptying of lands of uh, the genocidal emptying of lands of indigenous peoples and the extrication of labor um, in order to work the land uh, in order to eventually become a capitalist economy, right? So you have to accumulate um, capital, labor, land, right? Um, in the beginning, so-called primitive stages of, of capitalism, right? So um, while reading this, <laughs> uh, I, once again, you know, just because it's where I worked, um, in in the Midwest, right? Uh, I wondered whether or not that concept of primitive accumulation would actually apply to the accumulation of so many things, right? In, in, you know, um, including the thingification. I guess we could we could call it the objectification of peoples like Filipinos. Um, in the university archives and then in the university exhibition 
Um, so those that, those are the kind of ideas um, I was kind of kind of think about thinking about. So whereas perambulation typically is kind of used as you know in a in a way to describe economic forces and phenomena like capitalism, I um, saw similar kinds of forces and phenomena happening in the accumulation of things to produce knowledge, academic knowledge in the university, right? So those are the two kind of parallel processes. In terms of some tangible examples um, of both um, what this actually looks like in 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 in, uh, in the archive and, and museum space, and as well, so also some some contemporary Filipino American artists who have really kind of pushed back against this. So I actually was just um, at the Met in in New York City, and um, as you walk up, you know, you enter kind of there's two staircases, right? That there's that huge external staircase as you walk up to the Met and, and you're already starting to feel like you're entering some kind of cathedral, right? You're mm-hmm. like, okay, this is, everything is getting very grand, right? And I'm feeling very, very small and in awe, right? And being prepared to be in awe of things. And then you enter the building and you go up the second, you know, staircase, which is internal to the building. And you just start to see this whole line of, what looks to be classical Asian, like Chinese and Japanese, perhaps Korean, right? Um, vases displayed. And, you know, I, I think what the museum, what the meta message is being conveyed to the everyday museum goer is just power through accumulation, mm-hmm. right? Like, we we have an enormous archive, right? A collection. And it's just through the sheer numbers, right? The sheer, you know, amount of capital, right? That is, that is impressive, right? It's also like the aura, right? The, the, the you know, the aura that, that tends to impress us, right? There's, look at this age, this like, this patina of age, right? Um, of, of these precious things. So then this cuts to somebody like Stephanie Sajuko, who is an artist in the San Francisco Bay Area, and she's um, a, a Filipina immigrant. She migrated from the Philippines to California um, when she was a kid. And she eventually grew up to become an, an artist. Um, and she's got this really great um, multimedia, you know, I guess you could sculpture, where she just um, downloaded a bunch of images of classical Asian ceramics vases. She just printed them out and then slapped them on some woodcuts. And then got a bunch of packing crates and then just propped them up. All these fake vases, <laughs> right? Uh, and then, and then, and then you step away, right? Like some poor, from like, I think she says something like, you know, from make, she just wanted to make it look good from 14 feet away, you know? <laughs> and, and so it kind of just, it's, it's a really, really funny, but I think actually, very serious 
parody mm-hmm. and a very subversive parody of that accumulative tendency of, of the museum. Mm-hmm. This is a perfect place to take a break. When we get back, we'll talk a bit more about transcending the moniker Filipino primitive and what it means to quote unquote decolonize the eye. Patina Restaurant Group offers unparalleled service in New York's most iconic locations, including Lincoln Center, Rockefeller Center, and Macy's Herald Square. Patina is also the exclusive caterer at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. From meetings and presentations in the glass-walled atrium, to galas in the renovated Palm House, and intimate wedding showers at Yellow Magnolia Cafe, your event will be perfectly imagined and customized at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. You can also enjoy a la carte brunch and lunch at the picturesque Yellow Magnolia Cafe overlooking Lilypool Terrace. Executive chef Morgan Jarrett's unique menu offers warm, distinctive cuisine with a focus on local vegetables, grains, and sustainably sourced meats and fish. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Lisa Held, and I'm the host of The Farm Report here on HRN. The Farm Report is a show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Expect from the field insights as guests explore how producing fresh, delicious food relates to environmental and community sustainability, justice, and better health. You can find The Farm Report wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. And we're back. So we were talking about the idea of the Filipino primitive, and you were saying how it's not so simple as just um, challenging the name or refusing to use it and that it's not so black and white. And so um, a pretty buzzy phrase is decolonize the blank. And what does it mean to decolonize the I? And how is this one avenue by which we can subvert the title of the Filipino primitive? Yeah, um, decolonize uh, the eye. Um, uh, gosh, so many. <laughs> I know so many questions. Like, where, it's like a five-paragraph hamburger right? essay. <laughs> Frank Reed. Um Yeah, so so I, I I feel like what I've been trying to do over the past, you know, I don't know, gosh, maybe uh, fifteen years or so, is to pay attention to what our cultural producers, what Filipino American, in particular Filipino American cultural producers are, are trying to do. And I do think that some of the most exciting um, work, uh, and you have to pay close attention though sometimes, right, um, are, have to do with representational strategies that are decolonial. Um, so, for example, the work of Rianne Estrada, who is a Filipino-American, um, I think originally from the East Coast and now based in, in California for, for quite a while now. I've been kind of paying, a number of us have been paying attention to her solo um, artist, her work as a solo artist. She does all kinds of stuff. And... Uh, uh, the scholar uh, Nefertiti Tadiar, who, who uh, teaches at uh, Barnard and, and a couple of other people, were really drawn to the way in which she uses um, everyday um, things, especially things that that tend to that can 
begin to deteriorate in her in her sculpture like bars of soap, mm-hmm. bars of ivory soap, <laughs> and or erasers or scotch tape, right? And she creates all these really, really kind of um, very, very um, detailed, labor-intensive sculptures. They're really beautiful to look at and kind of abstract, right? Like, um, and I was really drawn to one series, um, her soap series, where she took bars of ivory soap, and of course already, because she's chosen ivory soap, you already know something is up because the brand ivory soap is 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 really um, really indexes the history of racialized and imperial hygiene, um, which uh, soap brands, older soap brands in particular, um, their advertising marketing uh, really really kind of incredibly racist and um, and uh, imperial, right? Like, you need to clean yourself. <laughs> well, yeah, I didn't know anything uh, about this. Can you give an example of an ad or some copy they used? Oh, oh gosh, yeah. I, I don't have, I don't have actually a logo um, with me right now, um, uh, but uh, there's this really great um, collection called The Forbidden Book, which has um, a collection of photographs and um, uh, ads which display Uncle Sam, America's Uncle Sam, right, cleaning, you know, in a river. Um, uh, it's, it's new um, colonies, that is to say Guam, Hawaii, Puerto Rico, uh, the Philippines, who, who are portrayed as Piccaninny, basically, yes. right? Um, so, uh, um, uh, try to, you know, clean the dirt, so-called dirt, <laughs> off of their newly, it's, it's newly, America's newly acquired, um, colonies. So anyways, soap, right? So Rihanna Estrada takes bars of soap, uh, in particular ivory soap, um, and then lines these bars of soap with her own hair. Strands of her own hair, which is actually very curly hair, and she strains them out though, um, and she uses a lot of her hair in order to create these really beautiful, you know, kind of black and white, like black lines on on white background uh, sculpture <laughs> that kind of looks like Frank Stella's. Uh, kind of the inverse of Frank Stella's paintings, his, mm-hmm. his black paintings, right? Um, which are sort of canonical for, you know, works now in terms of the rise of um, uh, particular forms of American minimalism. Huh. So anyway, so so her, she, she just like, she the way she displays them in, in the gallery is hilarious too. She just puts these, these hairline bars of soap, right, on a, on a, black felt right uh, on a pedestal and then covers it with this glass kind of diorama looking thing so it sort of looks like like something really precious sort of feels though a little bit like the natural history museum again something behind glass but it looks like modern art at the same time though it is 
the Filipino body on display. It's her hair, after mm-hmm. all, right? So it's literally, you know, her body on display, but it doesn't look like it at all. Anyways, I know this all sounds kind of really, you know, I don't know, kind of convoluted, but that I think if you if if we slow down and take a look at what you know what our cultural producers are are doing, if we take a second look and maybe a third look or a fourth look, we can see these decolonizing um, principles and and you know works um, that they that they are developing. Um, so that that's that's one way I. Um, I think uh, we can sort of decolonize the eye. The other way that that's kind of related to a new project that I'm I'm um, developing right now. I'm trying to develop um, uh, maybe an essay, maybe kind of a, a handbook, something along the lines of a visual culture or visual culture method book. Um, I mean, Cora, when you when you, you were an art history major, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what were kind of like the sources, books? Doesn't have to be a book, you know, handbooks, anything that were kind of inspiring for you to develop your own eye hmm. um, that you recall, or maybe not. I mean, maybe was there anything out there that really helped? You know, that you thought were actually helpful for Asian diasporic Asian American. Mm, not specifically art. Asian diasporic art. Unfortunately, as you might imagine, it was limited to like 30 minutes of one day, the last day of the semester. Yeah. It was so short. Um, but I thought, especially in this class, um, looking at a lot of the more historical texts um, regarding chinoiserie was very telling. And it didn't quite get at that level of criticism that I think we're getting at right now, but it is useful still to, you know, consider it from that colonial historical eye. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I, so what I'd like to, to write, you know, or, you know, kind of develop is, you know, what would, le- what would a, what would your, you know, kind of art or visual culture method book look like you know what what would you have liked to have had to have been able to read mm-hmm. you know yeah. uh, 10 years ago or so right so anyways I'm trying to kind of develop that and and part of what I'm realizing is that um, it's really easy to still kind of fall into this high ver- high art versus low art trap exactly right yeah. um, and so uh, what I'm trying to kind of, and this is very, this will get to the food and you can, you'll see how <laughs> fully self-serving this is. But, uh, you know, when you go to Filipino-American restaurants or eateries, a lot of them, the ones that are not high-end, right? That's a fairly new phenomenon, this kind of huge trend, um, which is fascinating to me, of, of Filipino-American uh, chefs and restaurants. But if you go to your basic turo turo uh, restaurant, do you know what turo turo means? No, can you explain? Yeah, it's uh, turo turo means to point, like point point. So it's like a buffet style, like cafeteria style, um, very very low key restaurant, very casual. So it's all buffet style, and you walk up to the buffet, and then you point at like say the you know one or two main entries uh, um, that you want to eat with your side of rice. So, mm-hmm. for example, you know, I would like some, you know, chicken adobo 
and a side of uh, mixed vegetables, sautéed vegetables with my side of rice. That's a point, 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 Toro Toro restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever been? Have you been to any of the Toro Toro restaurants in, in New York or anywhere? I have else? not. Oh, or maybe Do you have any Rex? Yeah. Oh. oh, you know. Well, you know, Manhattan has gotten really gentrified. So, anyways, <laughs> wherever there's a hospital, you know, along First Avenue with all those hospitals, mm-hmm. right? There's going to be a bunch of Filipino workers in the hospital, right? <laughs> All right, Doctors, just find the nearest hospital. Sex- yeah, exactly. Find a hospital, and you'll probably find a Kuro restaurant not that far away catering to Filipino workers. Mm-hmm. And um, the thing is, when you go into a Kuro restaurant, there's a look and design and smell, right, to a Kuro restaurant that's pretty distinct. There's typically a TV blasting, some kind of soap opera or talk show or, you know, an action movie, full blast. There's certain kinds of art, you know, up on the walls, like a giant fork or fork and spoon or The Last Supper. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I'm kind of just, what I've been wondering is like, what if we think about that as visual culture? Mm-hmm. You know, as as art that that the community itself is is producing, um, and part of what the feel experience of a Turo Turo restaurant really reminds one of is an immigrant living room, <laughs> right? It's mm-hmm. like it feels like home, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it it. Uh, and that's why a, a lot of the Turo restaurants, as well as bakeries, Filipino bakeries that I know, um, people just hang out there, like, for hours <laughs> and hours. And it's much more than a commercial space. It is actually um, a semi-communal gathering space. Sometimes it can be actually a refuge where people can gather to find out about... Um, uh, visa, how to, how to, you know, provide services, actually, on a very, very informal basis. Anyway, so mm-hmm. so that's one idea I'm kind of kicking around right now. Is I, I think I need to do some research on Turo restaurants mm-hmm. and, and visit many of them. <laughs> yeah, hard, hard work. Um, hard, hard, hard work. Hard, work that you'll just have to do. Um, so for our last, like, two minutes, I have one huge question to ask, but... Um, uh-huh. For, and this is in regards to your visual cultural methods prescribing for viewing Asian diasporic art. Um, so how would you advise uh, the critical viewing of Asian artists slash food producing in response to or despite their own Asian experience? Despite their own, I'm sorry, what was the... Right, so I feel like um, with looking at Asian diasporic art or even Asian chefs, it's like, oh, they have to cook Asian food or they have to make Asian mm. art. Um, how do you critically engage with their mm. art without pigeonholing? Right. Right. Yeah. No, that's, 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 uh, yeah, that's, that's a really, really great question. I mean, uh, you know, one, one of the, you know, one of the ways in which, and, and I think it's, it's, it's proven to be, have limits, right? One of the ways to kind of um, respond to that or challenge that has to do with the invocation of freedom freedom of expression, right? Mm-hmm. And that's important, but the thing is, like, you very quickly get into a trap because it's like, who gets to be free? You know, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't, you know, 
only certain people tend to, you know, get to be free at the cost of other people's freedom, right? So um, that's kind of a trap. Um, Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, how can I ask you how you might uh, kind of go about that question, Coral? I have no clue. I, I think it's just... Oh, my God. <laughs> it's, it's a hard one. Um, I think, yeah, I don't know. And I think... I mean, well, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 you go for it. Uh, well, I mean, one, one, one way might be to kind of, for us to kind of think rethink how we actually think about the work of art. Um, and so, so we tend to think, and this is really drawing on my partner, um, David Lloyd's uh, new book on, on race uh, called Underrepresentation. But part of what he's arguing, and I think I, I, mean, I really I agree with him, um, is that the work of art typically is associated with freedom, right? Freedom from politics, hmm. right? Um, and, and there's another way, though, is to kind of think about the work of art as something that bears the scars, right, bears the trauma of struggle. Um, and so that's one way to kind of think about the relationship between art and freedom and politics that's not about pigeonholing, but actually, you know, opening up the idea of, of history in relationship to to our artists and their cultural producers and what they're trying to do rather than just reducing them to their biology or something mm-hmm. which is totally racist mm-hmm. anyway so maybe that's one way to kind of um, start to think about rethink uh, criti- critically rethink um, what our um, culture producers are doing mm-hmm. yeah I think that's a perfect way to end our episode proof that the conversation is not black nor white but just another um, shade of gray so thank you so much for joining me today Sarita you're very welcome thanks so much for the invitation thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com backslash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.